Last week we, we began this series on the uh, Bible, and uh, I want to spend four weeks looking at why it's important, why it's important for us to read the Bible, how the Bible functions in our life, all of those questions we'll be talking about. Today is how we got the Bible. Obviously, in, in a few minutes we have there, I cannot explore that fully, but I'd like to give you sort of a 30,000 foot view of this. The reason that we had Zachary do this text is I just wanted you to hear the Bible talking about itself. So in Luke chapter 1, you have Luke saying, writing to a, uh, somebody named Theophilus, we don't know who Theophilus is, but uh, writing to Theophilus and saying, you know, I've been listening Lots of other people have written things about Jesus and about uh, his life and death. And so I thought, Theophilus, that I too would write an account. And I thoroughly investigated the events and the testimony regarding Jesus, and so that is reflected in this letter that I'm writing. That's how he begins with In 2 Peter, Chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter says this. First, all of you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke to God. And so Peter is saying that, uh, in this case, Scripture is the Old Testament. That's what Peter there, but, uh, Peter is saying, look, we have this today because of the work of God in our lives, because the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of people to produce this. The other text that Zach read was Isaiah 6, and in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is saying, I have this vision. I, I looked into heaven, and I saw the throne room of God, and I saw Sarah sitting and I saw all of this stuff. And what we would infer from that is that at least part of what Isaiah writes flows out of that experience that he had with God. So you find these kinds of references throughout uh, both the Old and the New Testament regarding God's Word. Today, I want to stress the idea that there is reason to have confidence in the Bible. That's kind of the theme of this whole lesson. In fact, I would go so far as to say that my faith is actually strengthened by the story of the Bible itself. And when I talk to somebody, when somebody says, why do you believe in God? Why do you have faith? Why do you do what you do? Part of the reasoning that I would give someone at that question is, I'm so totally amazed by how Scripture has come to us that I can't help but believe that God had a part to play in that. And that the reason I have the Word of God today in its form is because of the direct Word of God and making sure it's preserved for us. Uh, a few years ago, uh, after the uh, Iron Curtain had fallen, after the Soviet Union fell 
there was a a province of Russia called the Altai region, and leaders, political leaders in the Altai region of Russia went to a group of church leaders and said, we've lost our moral direction. The country is falling apart. And it was falling apart because the the organization and the government that the Soviet Union provided was wrong. So there were no longer kinds of constraints, kind of moral order in the country. And so Michael Armour, Dr. Armour, uh, talking with these people, created a little book called The Newcomer's Guide to the Bible. And it was for people who had never read the Bible, knew nothing about it, it was an overview, it was a way to introduce them to its content and get them up and running with it. And in his book, The Newcomer's Guide to the Bible, he says that even though the Bible was written over 1,500 years, it came in straps, 1,500 years, over 39 authors, at least, that we know of. In incredible diversity, historical context, cultural context, all of those variables. We have a work today that is incredible uniformity. Now, if something was written over a 10-year period, you wouldn't be surprised by that. But think about 1,500 years of something being written and flowing together out of all of the cultural tapestry of our world. So Mike Armour says, here are some characteristics of that uniformity. One, you will find that what the Bible says from Genesis to Revelation about moral right and wrong is incredibly uniform. So things that God says to us about how he wants us to live in Genesis is the same as we'll hear in Revelation. The nature of the spiritual realm, very uniform. Talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and, and angels, and seraphs, and that we read about in Isaiah, and all of that, incredibly uniform, from Genesis to Revelation. The character of God, what God is like. Compare what the Bible says about God over 1,500 years with diversity of what other people have said about the gods, and you're just kind of blown away because there is no uniformity in the next step. The, the worth and promises of God. Very consistent from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, you have this theme that runs through the whole Bible about what God has done. The same one. And you know then well that a guy in, at the beginning of the 1500 year process could not have collaborated with somebody toward the end of the 1500 year process. And yet there's this year for The nature of man, including what happens to man today, very uniform across all those books, all that history. 
Biblical writers often express the belief that they were speaking for God or were under God's influence. Now, there's a historical debate about whether or not uh, these writers had any control over what they wrote. I happen to think they did. Because uh, I think you have to believe what Luke said. And Luke said, I read what other people write. I have undertaken to write something myself. And so there's some individual initiative, some autonomy in what Luke says. And I think you have to believe that. You believe scripture. You take it serious. But was God influential in that? Absolutely. And I think Luke would say that I, I felt inspired and viewed by God with, with truth. And it's reflected in this word that I write. Paul said, we speak these things in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. He said that to the Corinthian church. He told Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for instruction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient Equipped for every good work. We're all And so, what, what I hear Paul saying is, Lo, if you want to be equipped to be a good disciple of Jesus, you've got to learn this. Third, Peter said, No prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke. So there's a self-consciousness in the scripture about what it is and where it came from and how God worked in that and inspired it. I think this is kind of funny in a way because time and again uh, the Bible has proved its critics wrong. So for example, 19th century critics, uh, this was 19th century was a time when there was uh, the rise of German criticism and uh, all that. They said that the Hittites in the Old Testament were a fiction. So it was made up. So the humor. Early in the 20th century, archaeologists uncovered impressive remains of an extensive Hittite Similarly, critics said there was no such person as Sargon. Sargon in the Bible is an Assyrian king. But historians reversed themselves when archaeologists found Sargon's palace in modern day Iraq. Third, archaeologists found in 1960. The ancient city of Ebola, where they found a vast array of well preserved documents describing the world of Abraham's day. This clarified long disputed details in the story about the story of Abraham. For the discovery, historians said that Canaan was just a big pasture. That there wasn't any uh, cultural development. I mean, it was just, you know, just a passion. 
The Ebla documents tell us that Canaan was indeed populated with scores of cities. And that's inspiring to me. It's inspiring to me. Every time we, we read something in the Old Testament that says this existed, this happened, this person lived, people say no, and then we find out years later because of some excavation, because, because of some archaeologists, that that was in fact true. I want to go take on. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about the manuscripts. And again, this is 30,000 foot stuff. We, we don't have time to go into it in depth. But first of all, the Old Testament. The Old Testament is sometimes called the Hebrew Bible. It was written by Hebrews. Uh, we call it Old Testament because uh, it was written up until the time of Jesus. And we commonly believe that Jesus brought a new covenant or a new testament to us. And so that's why the New Testament documents are called that. The Bible was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Hebrew and Aramaic are very similar. We only have four existing copies of the Old Testament. Now you might say, whoa, that's not much. Wait till I get to the New Testament. But those four documents came in their present form because of a group of people called Imagine. Nazarites over time were the people who made copies of scripture. They didn't have Xerox machines. They didn't have PDF files. They didn't have the internet. So it's all in time. Nazarites in every book of the Old Testament could tell you the number of times a letter was used in each book. A single letter. They could tell you what the middle verse, the middle word, and the middle letter of each book was. Now why did they do this? Is it, is it because they were, uh, we're talking about the modern Greeks earlier, or is earlier anal? Is that, is that what's going on there? You know, are these just people who, who have such a, a taste for detail that they do? No. It was the way that they corrected themselves. It was the way that they checked the accuracy of what they were talking. Always making, always making sure. Is that the middle letter of this book? And if it's not, I better check for it instead. And so the Masoretes and the ancient scribes before them followed these meticulous rules and copying. And so what we have in these four Existing copies of the Hebrew Bible are, are things that are very, very accurate. Why do we not have more than that? It was because they had such regard for the Word of God that they, when a, when a Bible got dog-eared and, and worn, they would burn it out of respect and would not allow it to be confused. That's why we don't have any other copies. But there are other copy other scriptures that shed light on these four 
So we have uh, things like the Pentateuch, which is a Greek copy of the first five books of the Bible. Uh, pardon me, Pentateuch of the Scriptures. Uh, we have Greek, Syriac, and Latin translations. Uh, there's the Talmud, which is a, a Hebrew commentary, which comments on the Old Testament. Now, why are these things useful? Because you can look at one of them, you can look at the Pentateuch and say, well, how did the Pentateuch translate this verse, and are they saying the same thing? And you can check for accuracy in, in those sorts of things. Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in 1948 were the result of the Essenes that I've mentioned before. The Essenes were this community of Jews that settled around the Dead Sea because they didn't want to be part of the corrupt world. And they collected Old Testament manuscripts. Well, one day this shepherd was chunking rocks, and he chunked a rock into this cave in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there were cliffs surrounding the Dead Sea. And he heard a clink, and it turned out to be the base that was holding the, the urn, rather, that was holding a set of the scrolls. And so scholars and people went and, and discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, and now they are kept in Jerusalem. And they were a vast storehouse of manuscripts that we didn't have. It was a marvelous stuff. So that's the story of the Old Testament. Said very quickly, very simply. But you have with the Old Testament this history of people being very, very righteous about the way they handled it and making sure that it was always uh, copied in, in ways that were almost scientific. Well, a word about the New Testament. I'll say less about it, but unlike the Hebrew Bible, there are 4,500 manuscripts of the New Testament. 4,500. None of them is a complete New Testament. So you might get the Gospels, or you might get Acts, or, in fact, uh, if you were to go out and buy a free copy of the New Testament, in the back would be a little card, and the card would tell you what ancient manuscripts contain. And so it might say, this manuscript contained Gospels and Acts, or this one contained Epistles and Revelation, or this one contained this, that, or the other. Well, when you have 4,500 manuscripts, you can cross-check them. The most important copies, whole copies of the New Testament are the Vatican, it's called Vaticanus, uh, the Sinaitic, or Sinaiticus, and the Alexandrina, as in Alexandrina. And they're giving these names uh, because of uh, where they're kept or where they, they were discovered. So, Sinaiticus was discovered at uh, Mount Sinai. Well, I think it may be a British Museum, but I'm not sure. These are the oldest whole manuscripts we have. So, 
you go to Mark 16 in your Bible, you'll notice that at the end of verse 8, it'll say the short ending. And then uh, the rest of Mark will have extensive footnotes going with it. And basically the footnotes say this. The oldest manuscripts, Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, and Alexandrinus, end at verse 8. Newer manuscripts, manuscripts that aren't as old as these three, include these verses. Well, if you have an old one, an old manuscript, and a newer manuscript, and, and all of a sudden in the new manuscript something pops up that wasn't in the old one, what did you do? Must have been added. And so that's why the end of Mark chapter 16 looks so confusing when you look at it. Because of this very, very uh, industrious concern about being faithful to what was given to them. There are other kinds. Now, these were just manuscripts. These are two that we're talking about. These were just uh, manuscripts that have the actual text of Scripture. But there are other things as well. There are lectionaries and translations of Scripture into other languages. And there's all the early church fathers, second and third century. Uh, there are um, orders of worship that we have. And so. Instead of uh, having you all turn to Luke chapter 1, we would put in our order of worship Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We would print it in here. And it amounts to a manuscript. It's not, really, but it's, it's sort of a manuscript. And we can compare what was written in that order of worship or that lectionary or whatever with Scripture. The result is that it gives us this very, very, very dependable copy that we enjoy today. Finally, uh, the Bible places very great stress on its importance. Paul says, give attention, he tells Timothy, give attention to the public reading scripture. Thursday night at small group. We did a neat thing. It's really a lot of fun. We're studying Galatians. And so we gave, we had, uh, I don't know, four or five different, five, five different translations of Scripture. And we had everybody read the whole text <coughs> from that translation. So we heard it five different ways. And then we talked about it. What did you hear? What, what's going on here? Which translation would you like to best? Paul says, give attention to the public reading scripture. What Zachary did today is very, very And I told him at Coffee Break, I said, Zachary, sign up again. You know, and, and we need to encourage our young people and everybody to read scripture out loud in class. Paul knew its importance. We need to know its importance. Number two, 
Paul told the Romans, the scriptures give us hope because of their steadfastness and encouragement. Steadfastness and encouragement. Paul told the Corinthians, Jesus was buried and raised according to the scriptures. You've seen this, this great respect for what God is doing. It's sad that we don't really pay attention to God. God is, I think, I believe, I firmly believe that God has watched over us. And if He wanted me that much, and wanted so much for me to have His work, should I not have my work? So, God calls us to listen to Scripture, to read it out loud, and take it in, to be instructed by it. It's meant to be consumed. I quoted Ezekiel last week. Ezekiel was told by God, eat this scroll. And Ezekiel said, it is sweet. It is sweet. I'm not recommending you to buy it. But you, you get the point. You know what God is saying and what is it is. When you compare what we have to this, in terms of the biblical evidence, against, say, Shakespeare, I blow your mind. Because we have no extant, no existing manuscripts, original manuscripts, unchanged What we do have is, is uh, Contains prolific errors. And yet, when you read Shakespeare, I'm, I'm not advocating for Shakespeare, but I'm just saying that when you look at the Word of God compared to that, there's no comparison. Too often, the, the Bible is ignored, it's left on a bread and dresser, it gathers guts. Many times it's rejected as being authoritative, in spite of huge evidence to the contrary. The thing that I want you to say to you as we work two more lessons is, is I want you to understand, I want us to understand, that God is saying to us, my word is authoritative. I expect you to take it seriously and to look in it for my will and my direction. This sermon today is meant to give a foundation for, for believing, to have faith in what this says. This is, I think, the evidence means that you just can't walk away from it and take it lightly. You can't chunk stones at it when you start to realize all the scrutiny that it's on. And to motivate us to give a lifetime to Dear Father, thank you for giving us your word as a way to stay informed, encourage, stay on track, and hunger for it, and we like to feel love in space. In Jesus' name we pray.